probably doesn't come as a surprise to you to find out that I'm a really bad cook. Uh, that's because I was only single for like three years after I was a kid, so I never learned how to cook anything. I basically, I learned the basics. I learned ramen. I learned mac and cheese. I learned DiGiorno's, right? That's good. I learned pasta with red sauce. That's pretty easy. I learned uh, bagels, right? I mean, it's not, what do you do to learn? Ba- you just kind of put them in the toaster, right? And I put butter on them or peanut butter on them. If, is that gross you guys? Is peanut butter on a bagel okay? Is that, that's okay? Yeah, okay. Uh, b- bananas too, yes. I know how to cut up bananas. So, but basically what I'm trying to tell you is uh, my cooking skills probably equate to the palate of about a six-year-old. Therefore, my palate basically also equates to about a six-year-old. Everybody wants to like say, oh, let's go some new place. I was in Pastor Lucas's car this week, and he said, you want to go to Thai Bite? And I said, no, I don't want to go to Thai Bite. I'm afraid to go to Thai Bite. I don't know what I would eat at Thai Bite. There's no mac and cheese. There's no pizza. Uh, there's no chicken fingers. I just don't know what I would do. I order rice? Like, that's all, that's all I'd know what to get there. So all this to say, I've never been a huge um, I don't even know how to put it, appreciator, I don't know, I've been never super into cooking and cooking channel things, but my mom was super into the cooking channel, and my wife kind of likes the cooking stuff, and I guess that's why I got married, right, I, didn't, I never have to cook again, uh, except for right now, because I have to cook right now, but uh, that aside, I, uh, I didn't know all the celebrity chefs, but I learned about some of them. Guy Fieri, right, Is he a, he's a celebrity chef, the guy with the crazy hair, yeah, eh, amen, uh, Gordon Ramsay, the guy who screams at everybody. And by the way, I did not learn about Gordon Ramsay from TV. I learned about Gordon Ramsay because he's a meme, right? Because he's always screaming at people. I see him on YouTube. He's always screaming at somebody, or he's on Instagram screaming, and it's always taken out of context, but it's hilarious. Um, and I just want you to imagine, and maybe this is a, sounds like a fever dream that I had or something, uh, that uh, Gordon Ramsay showed up to my house and started screaming at me and uh, forced me to eat what he made uh, in my kitchen. Have you ever had a dream like this? I've never had a dream like this, but uh, I just want you to imagine that were to take place. Me with my six-year-old palate uh, in my kitchen having Gordon Ramsay say, you know, crazy things that he would say and uh, force me to say, no, you got to eat the, the quinoa, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Right? I just said that word. I don't even know what that, those things are. Um, I, I, sorry, this is a crazy imagination. But I want you to imagine he's in my kitchen making food for me and he makes me ask him what I want him to make for me. He says, what do you want me to make for you? I'm going to make whatever you want. And he says in a British accent that I can't do right now. But uh, he's screaming all these things. And I'm like, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, mac and cheese? Uh, ramen? Pizza, spaghetti with red sauce, I, that's probably what I would naturally go to because that's what I'm used to making, right, whenever I make food, which is not very often. Uh, but that's probably what I would ask because that's kind of what I'm, I'm used to. And I would ask those things, but the problem is if I asked Gordon Ramsay to make me a mac and cheese, I'm pretty sure he would cuss me out and scream at me, but I'm also pretty sure that he would tell me that that's a very insultingly low thing to ask, right? If he's in your kitchen and he has all the world at his disposal and he can make whatever that he makes in the finest restaurants in the world, that's an insultingly low request, is it not? I wonder what you would ask if Gordon Ramsay was in your kitchen. He can make anything for you. What would you ask him? You could imagine things, maybe um, gourmet steak or, or chicken. No, you wouldn't order chicken. See, that's my six-year-old palate coming out. Uh, you would order something amazing because he's able to do stuff that's pretty incredible. Uh, and the fear that you would have if he was ever in your kitchen is that you would ask something that was too insultingly low. Uh, you probably know this, and you've heard this before at church, but 
God asks us to pray, and God is able to answer prayers, but the problem is that we often don't think about is that sometimes when we ask God for things, they are insultingly low requests. We ask some things of God, like to have a good day, like uh, maybe for health, maybe for, for things to go well, maybe for your grades to go well, maybe you ask for things like to get in the college you want to, but the problem is if we actually took all of our prayers that we prayed this week, chances are our prayers would be like down here, like super low. And today, we're going to learn a text that basically is going to tell you that you need to take whatever you're praying for and step those things up. The problem for us as 21st century Christians, we're teenagers, I think is we ask for things that we think are big requests, but they're really small things. And it's not bad to pray for the small things, and God wants us to pour our hearts out to him, but I want you today to learn some things that God asks us to pray for. He literally invites us and says, pray for these things, and they're bigger than what we usually pray about. So grab a Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. We are going to finish this series today in Ephesians 3. This is the series that basically covers the whole front end of the book. And you might have noticed we've been covering a lot of ground. We've been going pretty fast through this book. We're going to slow down next week. When we start Saturday night services next week and we bring that added element, we're, we're going to be going through a new series in the book of Ephesians, uh, starting in chapter 4, but for now, we're finishing this series in chapter 3, which if you remember, if you were to summarize everything in this whole book into one word, you would see it on the screen right here. It's, it's that word, grace. Paul writes about God's grace. That's what Ephesians is basically about. And he tells these Christians who are in the city, he says, hey, you need to know God's grace, and you need to live out God's grace. That's basically the book. And today, he says, there's things that you need to pray for that God's grace would continue to abound in your life. And the problem for most of us, if we looked at our prayers, is they're too small. Let's have this text maybe raise the standard of what we ask God for. Look at verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, which is how he starts most of his prayers. He actually says that a few times in the book. He said it earlier in chapter 1, and he's going to say it again. For this reason, and then he's going to go into this prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, which is just trying to clue you in to the fact that he's praying. Right? That, that seems like a normal thing. It sounds like he's just, you know, folding his hands, closing his eyes, bowing his head, right? That's what it sounds like to you. But actually for them, this is a pretty uncommon thing. Usually they would pray standing up. And that's the, the common practice for these Jewish people, and that's probably how he learned to pray. But the point is, in the Bible, there's plenty of examples of people bowing down to pray. And what that means is, hey, we got something really serious going on. It'd be like if you and your family were praying and, you know, maybe praying around the dinner table, but something really serious happened. Maybe you found out someone in your life, you know, got diagnosed with some disease or someone got into a car accident or something like that. Your family, instead of just sitting and praying there, I mean, there could be a situation where you might, like, get on your, your knees and pray because it's really that serious. That's kind of what he's saying here. He's saying, look, I'm going to God humbly on your behalf. And look at who he calls God. He says he bows his knees before the Father. I don't know if you know this, but um, a lot of people have mentioned this, so this is not my original thought, but in the Old Testament, the idea of God being Father is rare. In the New Testament, it's everywhere, right? Do you know why that is? Well, because Jesus came, and he said, God is my Father in a special way, but he's also going to be your Father. So, like, Jesus comes along to give us permission to actually use that term about God, because if you have a right understanding of God and how amazing he is, it's kind of a scary thing to call him father, right? Not just anyone can call God father. I mean, you got to be in a tight relationship to call him father. So he says, look who I'm going to. Remember who God is. He's your father. 
He cares for you. Verse 15. He says, from whom every family, and if you have a footnote there, what it might say is, or from all fatherhood, it's a play on words here, with every family in heaven on earth is named. So what he's saying is, I'm going to the father who's the father of fathers, basically. Father of all the families that we have. You can't point to a single family. You can't point to a single organization, a single uh, government, a single company, where God is not the, the father or the source of life for those people. So basically he's saying, God's our father because we know Christ. But remember that this God is a sovereign God. He's over the whole world. There's nothing that falls outside of his purview. This is from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, which is a weird idea. Um, who are the families in heaven and who are the families on earth, right? If you're reading this and really wanting to be careful about what this means, you're going to ask that question, right? And that's a hard question to answer. How most people have answered this question is that what he's talking about is we've got people in the, the tight-knit family of God. Um, you could call it the church, which is what he calls it earlier in chapter 2. That's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, where is the church right now? Where's the church right now? Well, in this building, right? And in the building across the street. Oh, and in the other churches across the street and across the country. I mean, it's, it's in a lot of places. It's on earth, right? Where else is the church right now today? Well, you know, when you die, you don't cease to become part of the church, right? You're still a part of the church. You're just in heaven. So the idea is God's the God of Christians in heaven and on earth, the ones who are dead, the ones who are alive. And sometimes we forget about people who've died, and that's a wrong thing to do. Sometimes they slip our mind, but we should remember the Christians who came before us who've died because they're no less a part of God's church than you and I are. In fact, you could say they got there first, right? Uh, so they're a part of God's church, even though they're dead. That's a, a helpful thing to remember, right? God is the father of Christians, whether they're alive or dead. It says in verse 16, that, he's, this is the first prayer request that he asked for, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, so that's a gift, grace, that he may give you, Christians, to be strengthened with power, right? Strength, power, kind of feel like the same idea. But the point is, it's like he's giving you ability, and he wants you to act on that ability. Power is the ability. Strength is the ability to use the ability, right? It's like doing something. He says, I want you to be strong with power, how do you get this power? Well, this power comes through his spirit, right? We've already talked about the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians, but here's a big prayer request. This is the first big prayer request. God wants you to be asking him for power and strength through the Holy Spirit, okay? Where? So that it should be big and strong and muscular. No, look where it says, in your inner being. So that's a, a phrase that's used in the Bible to talk about who you are on the inside, right? Uh, you got an inside and an outside. You've got your spirit, and you've got your body. You're made of two things, really. And those two things, it's really hard to separate those two things, but that's what you are. You're an inner person and an outer person. Your body, your spirit. You can call it a, a body and a soul. Whatever word you want to use, you're two things. Here's what he's saying. I want you to be strong on the inside of who you are. Right? We, we know the difference between the outside of you and the inside of you. Right? Um, he's saying be strong on the inside. Your spirit, your soul, ask God to continue to make you strong through the spirit. Right? For what? Look at verse 17. He explains what we're supposed to be strong for. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, this is a big prayer request. And an odd one, if you know theology, um, he's talking to Christian people. And definitionally, if you're a Christian, that means that Jesus is already in you. Right? So what does he mean that Christians should be asking to be like 
having Christ live in their life or in their heart. Well, I think, yeah, I just kind of gave it away to you by saying it that way. That's kind of what you're asking. You, as a Christian, can continue to go to God and say, I want my heart, I want my life to be a home that is fit for Jesus to live in. Right? If you imagine, you're, and this is something that many authors and preachers have already said about this, so it's not, again, it's not original to me, but imagine that your heart is like a house. The reason I say that is the word here, that he would dwell in your hearts through faith, the word dwell is actually the word for house. It's like he would house, he would go inside of a house in you. Right? So like you're the house, Jesus is the person who's living there. Right? What kind of house are you? What is your heart? Right, if you're a Christian who, who, who is a saved person, you've been forgiven of your sins, what is the state of your heart? Is it full of envy of other people? I read one um, book this week that talked about imagine your heart is like a house that has different rooms in it. Right? And imagine in these different rooms, uh, who, who are the people in your living room? Right? Is it full of worldly people that all you hang out with and all you listen to are worldly people in your ear? Right? What's, it, what's in the heart of your desires? Right? Is there sexual impurity? Is there idolatry? Putting things above God. Like what, what is your heart like? Right? And the idea is Jesus comes in and he's supposed to live in there, but what he does is he picks up the mop and broom and he starts cleaning up your heart. That's what happens when you're a Christian. He's saying pray that Jesus would do that, that your heart would be more pure, a place for him to be. He may dwell in your hearts through faith. Look at verse 17, back in the text, it says, that you, so another request, being rooted and grounded in love, which is something that he assumes for all these Ephesians. That's something I assume about you if you're a real Christian. I don't assume that about you if you're not, right? but if you're a real Christian, here's something I assume about you. Your life is rooted like a tree, and it's grounded like a big building with a big foundation in love. That like the reason you came to become a Christian was love, right? Because Jesus loved you. You understood his love for the first time. And, and you were forgiven, and he showed you his love. And what does Jesus tell us to do? John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you should love one another. So, like, wrapped up in everything of the Christian life for you should be one word, L-O-V-E, love, right? That's what you're rooted and grounded in. That, it says in the next one, verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend. So, we're still talking about strength. But this is a different strength. Strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth and, verse 19, to know the love of Christ? If you're reading that, that should like, just freak you out. Okay. Um, you're supposed to know the breadth and length and height and depth, new subject, and to know the love of Christ. Does that not bother you? Like, what are you talking about? The, the length and height and breadth and depth of what? Right? Like, this room? Like, what are you supposed to know? Right? Well, I think he answers the question in verse 19. He's talking about the love of Christ. He says, I want every Christian to comprehend something. You, if you're a Christian, you experience God's grace. He's shown you his love. But do you understand that you, under, you understand so little of it? Like, if you're really to understand the depths of God's love and how wide it is and how long it is and how deep it is, you understand that you think it's a big deal that God saved you and that he forgave you, and it is a huge deal, right? And you start to, like, in your brain kind of measure out, like, how big this is, how big God's love is. You understand that it's an ocean that has no bottom. It's an ocean that does not have a shoreline. It goes on forever. It's forever deep. It's infinite. He says, start to explore more of that. Start to understand God's love in a bigger way and pray that you could comprehend Christ's massive love huge love, deep love, all these words kind of describing how, how amazing his love is. 
The problem is, for many of us, like I said at the beginning, we ask for such small things. If I look at your prayer requests, probably they're mostly about this test, this day, this thing, right? Which, again, pray for those, right? But go bigger than that. Like, some of us never ask big things of God, and we are insulting to God in the things that we ask. We don't ask for enough. We don't ask for big enough things. It says in verse 19, the point of this is to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, this is, this is why this is confusing. So you're supposed to know something that transcends knowing. Yes, that's what he just said, right? Do you see how this is kind of, this, this is why we've got to go slow through this passage. It's kind of hard to figure out. What is he trying to say? It, it, I think it's like the analogy of an ocean that I just gave you, right? You can know a particular part of the ocean. Let's say you're a body surfer, you're a surfer. You know the beaches around here. Right? You know that San Onofre has good waves. You know that Thousand Steps is usually empty in the morning. You know different, you know, that Crescent's the worst. You know uh, that, right? You know all these things. You know that, uh, is it the worst? Uh, no, all you guys like to go there. Sorry. I just threw a dart at Mark McGill right with that. Uh, but you know things about the beach, right? But if I were to ask you, but do you know the Pacific Ocean? You'd be like, well, I, I mean, yeah, I know parts of it. But what if I said, do you know, like, all of it? Do you know, like, all the beaches in Guam? Or do you know all the beaches in Japan and, you know, Australia? Is that still kind of the Pacific, kind of the Indian Ocean? I don't know. It's all one thing. Think about it. These oceans, I don't know why we broke them up in the first place, right? It's all the ocean. Have you ever thought about that? Does it ever bug you? You look at a map and you look at a globe and you're like, why is that the Indian Ocean? And that's the Pacific Ocean, right? I don't understand it. There's probably currents for some reason for it. But, um, anyway, but I probably think that they named the oceans before they knew all about currents, right? So... Never mind. Point is, my question is, do you know the Pacific Ocean? The answer, probably a little bit. Some of you more than others. But if my, my assignment for you today was, but know the Pacific Ocean. Study it. Research it. Go out there. Experience it. Get in the water. Know the tides. Know if you go out and you body surf, you're going to end up, you know, 100 yards down the beach because of the current. And you know the, the rip currents. Know it all. That takes some experience for you. That takes you going out there and experiencing it. That's the kind of knowledge that he's talking about here. He's saying, I want you to know the love of Christ, and it is bigger and wider and deeper than you could ever imagine. But here's what you need to do. You need to experience God's love. Right? That's a really hard thing. Well, what does that look like? Right? That's, that's a hard question to answer, but that's what he's talking about. Right? We can at least see that. It gets even worse. Right? If you're trying to understand this and think about how to do this, look at the middle of verse 19. It says that, You'd be knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, I'm, I'm tapping out at this point. What on earth does that mean? That like in your life, all of God's fullness, which is infinite, that you would be full of God's fullness. Right? I read in, in a book that um, tried to describe this. And one thing that it said was, imagine you go out to that ocean and you're a little tiny container, right? But you need to be full of the Pacific Ocean, are you, are you, but if a little you know, water bottle gets full of the Pacific Ocean, is it full of all the Pacific Ocean? Well, no, it's not, it's not everything, but that bottle is full of the Pacific Ocean. That's kind of the idea, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, you're not going to become God by studying him. You're not going to become God by going outside and humming, right? You're not going to do that, okay? You can't do that. It's impossible. If anybody ever tells you you'll become Jesus or, you know, you'll become a God, they're lying to you. It's not how it works, right? But can your life be dominated and full of God? Can your time 
and your relationships be full of God? Can your mind and your imagination and your goals and your ambitions, can that be full of God? Yeah, I can. And that's what he's praying for. Do you see how that's like a massive prayer request? That's better than, um, God, help me with this day. I hope that I get through this test okay, right? Again, there's nothing wrong with praying that, but it's too small. It's not enough. And you might say, well, I feel like this passage is kind of assuming that God's just going to like do it all, that he's able and that he wants to do it. Well, look at verse 20. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Right? That's multiple words. The word abundantly is actually the word super abundantly. It's like you're taking multiple words that mean a lot and you're putting them all together in one tiny little sentence and saying God is able to do more, so much more, super abundant more than what? Well, then two things, than what you can ask. Everything that you ask God will be less than what he can actually do. That's the point. Think that one through. Everything that you ask of God, will, it will never hit the like, peak of what he's able to do. We ask a lot of ourselves and each other, right? You're, if you're on a football team, you ask a lot of the people on your team. You ask a lot of their endurance and their stamina. You ask a lot of yourself. If you work out, if you run, you ask a lot of yourself, okay? But there's a limit that you have to everything that you can do, right? You're not infinitely smart. You can't answer every question. There's things you don't know. You're not infinitely strong. There's just things that you cannot do. And there's a limit to every person's body, right? Even think about endurance, right? You can push your limit further and further, but there's still a limit, right? We're still only doing like 100-mile races. We're not doing, you know, 2,000-mile races with no sleep because you just can't do it. Here's the point. Whatever you ask of God that pertains to what he's doing in his plan, it's, it doesn't even approach his ability. That's crazy, and then you might say, well, that's what I'm asking. But I bet I could imagine and think of things that are bigger than what God can do. Well, look at the next word. It says, bigger than all that, he can, that we can ask or think. The word think is the same as the word imagine. Like, if you were to imagine all the things that God can do, your imagination is not big enough. If you imagine how good the new world that God is going to make, if you try to imagine that, your imagination just doesn't cut it. It's good. You should imagine, but it's, it doesn't get to the fullness of what God's going to do. If you're to imagine the goodness of God's love, it's whatever you imagine, it's still not all that God's love is. That might sound scary, but that should be overwhelmingly comforting to you. It should be overwhelmingly comforting to you. That the God that you love and the God that you serve and the God that came to live and die for you is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. How? Well, according to the power at work within us. Why does he do these things? What does he do it for? Does he do it so that you'd be happy and uh, that you'd be, uh, you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise? No, that's not why. Look what it says in verse 21. It says, to him be the glory in the church, in you, in us, right? Uh, the point of God doing this is that he's going to take you and me, people who are sinful people, people who are always bent towards evil, he's going to change us and transform us by his grace so that we give him glory which is a backwards, upside-down, amazing thing that you as a sinner could give God glory. And it says he does that through the church and in Christ Jesus. Right? Couldn't do it without Jesus and what he done. When? Does he do it back then? Does he do it in the Bible times? No. You see how this passage just keeps like stretching everything you think in every direction? Now look what it says in verse 21. So that he get glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Yours? 
your kids, your grandkids, their grand. Yes, throughout all generations, God is going to have a church, and he's going to continue to give himself glory. Every time someone gets saved, that's a miracle of God, an impossible thing in our eyes. And every time it happens, every time it happens here in True North, every time it happens here at Compass Bible Church, God is doing something amazing, and he's bringing himself glory. And he'll do it in a thousand years. After we're all dead and forgotten, he'll continue to do it because we won't be forgotten to him. Join the ranks of his church in heaven through all generations, forever and ever, right? It's like the, the superlatives just keep getting added on to on to on. It's just, how long does he do it? Forever and ever and ever and ever. How much is he able to do? More and more and more and more. But what do we ask? Little, few, puny, rarely, narrowly, small, weekly. Like, we ask so little. I hope this passage encourages you to pray. That's what this passage is all about. Trying to get you to pray, but to pray for more. Two things that this passage helps us do. First of all, point number one, it it helps deepen your trust in who God is. Um, Deepen your trust in God, who is a lot of things. This passage gives us three things that God is, and three ways that we can trust him. The first one comes in verse 14. He's called our Father. Letter A, you can write this down. Deepen your trust in God, who is your caring and loving father. That's key to understanding all of this. Sometimes if you feel like you ask someone for something, you're afraid that they're going to say no. Right? Guys, you're afraid to ask girls out because you're afraid they're going to say no. Right? Uh, if you weren't afraid, you'd probably, you know, ask more of them out. But then you'd get told no more often, and then it would be awkward. Right? Uh, but you're afraid of, of a no right? That's a good, healthy fear of no. I mean, don't let it be debilitating, right? But it's okay to feel that way. God says yes to the requests that he wants you to ask, right? Let me, let me qualify that. Um, this passage in the Bible is not saying that whatever you ask God, no matter what it is, whether it be good or evil, he's going to do. The Bible does not say that, okay? So, you're not getting a blank check, so to speak, and saying, anything I pray. Okay, I pray that I'll be, you know, a billionaire by age 25. Okay, the Bible does not say that God is going to answer that prayer. In fact, in James 4, he goes after people for doing two things, two wrong things in prayer. James 4, 1 to 3 says that people make two mistakes in prayer. One mistake is, mistake one, is they don't ask for anything. He says, you have not because you ask not. So mistake one, that Christians and, you know, everyone else can make is, don't ask. Don't pray. Forget to pray. Don't have time to pray. Too busy for prayer. That's mistake number one. Mistake number two in prayer is that they ask so that they can spend what God gives on their passions, which means they've got these evil desires, and they're asking God to fulfill their evil desires. God doesn't want to fulfill those. God wants to change those desires. Stop praying for things. If, you, if you're genuinely praying, I, God, I want to be successful and rich and famous because I want to be successful, rich, and famous, stop praying for that. Because if God gave that to you, it would be the worst thing for you. Because those desires to be rich, famous, popular, successful, if that's all that's driving you, that, you don't want to get that. Stop praying for that. Right? You can pray that you glorify God. And that whatever he does in your life, whether you're successful or whether you're a failure in the world's eyes, that you glorify God, he'll answer that prayer. He's our heavenly father who cares for us. He wants to hear. 
I struggled with this because I thought, okay, Heavenly Father, you mean like how my, my daughter just really wants me to take care of all of her problems. The problem is, uh, my daughter has, no, this is not a problem, this is a good thing. My daughter has a, a mom named Alexandra who is always better at fulfilling these problems, and it's hilarious. Sometimes Eden's excited to see me, right? And it's like, oh, dad, right? right? But if she wants something, do you know what she's always doing? She straight up looks over my shoulder. Like I'm holding her, and she's like, where's the real help going to come from? She's looking for mom. It's like, oh, man, I can't do it. Like, why, why is this happening? And then I remember, it's like, oh, well, she's a baby. And, you know, she knows mom's got what she wants, right? And even if mom doesn't have what she wants, sometimes if she gets to the breaking point with me, like I, I've got a ceiling of what I'm able to do, right? I can't fulfill every desire. Sometimes I don't even know what's wrong, right? And, and when, when push comes to shove and I'm holding Eden, trying to calm her down, she's always looking around. She's like, Where, where's mom? right? She can help. And then you know what? Sometimes mom can't even help too. So uh, point is, I cannot fulfill every desire and every need of my daughter. I can't, right? And Alexander can't either. And your parents can't either. So maybe cut them some slack a little bit, just as a side note. Um, But God can. God can. God is your heavenly father, right? If you're in Christ, if you've understood all that we preached on and you understand that you can only know God through Jesus Christ, then God is your father and he can meet every need and he knows every need. My problem is I don't understand baby crying, right? I don't know what it all means. I know some of it, right? I know there's the the whining versus the pain, but I don't know all of it. Listen to what Jesus says about God. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? That just sounds like a rebuke to say, stop worrying. But listen to what he says next. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't put, they don't put food in the ground. They don't, like, go and do a harvest. They don't do any of that. Yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Every time you see a bird pecking on a, a hot dog at a baseball game, guess what? God is feeding that bird. Every time you see a bird pecking in the trees and getting a worm, guess what? Who provided that food? God did it. Every time you open your mouth and you, you open it and you put canes in your mouth and your teeth chomp down on it and your saliva starts to loosen it up and you swallow it. Sorry, but like this is what happens, right? Every time you do that and then the, you know, the compounds break down and you get the carbs that become sugar and all that stuff and you have energy and their calories. Every time that happens... Do you understand that it's God who's doing that? If God wanted to turn the off switch off, it will be over for you. Every time you eat, everything that you get comes from God. And the point is, he knows our needs and he meets them. We're not usually thankful enough. God is our heavenly father and he cares for us. Matthew 6 says that, but Matthew 7 says that too. It invites people to pray. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask, seek, knock. But then in verse 10, Matthew 7, 10 says this. Or verse 9 says, Or which one of you, if he has a son who asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Right? What evil parent would give their kid a snake if they were hungry? It just doesn't happen. I've never seen it happen. Right? I'm sure there's extreme examples, but uh, that's just not how people usually work. Even if you're a sinner. Even if you're really bad. Even if you're like a, a mafia, lord of the mafia. Right? Guess what? You're going to feed your kids and you're not going to give them snakes. Right? Okay. It says, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, even though you're evil, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? 
Sometimes our worries and our anxieties are betraying a heart that does not trust God. You're carrying your loving father. Second thing that our passage says is he gives out of his riches. The second thing you could write down is that um, letter B, he's able to do more than you can ask or imagine. I know I'm just kind of quoting verse 20 there. But if we're going to deepen your trust in God, when you're going to go to him and ask bigger things this week than you did last week, you need to trust God, and you need to trust this right here, that he's able to do more than you can ask. He's able to do more than you can imagine. That's verse 20, but also verse 16. Once you write that down, look at verse 16 again. This is an odd sentence, but I want you to catch the weight of this. It says, Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened, and he goes on. But how does God give this? He gives it, a couple words, according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. Not out of the riches of his glory. Not from the riches of his glory, but according to the riches of his glory. You might say, is that just the semantic difference? I think, I think there's an actual meaning difference between those two. According to something is similar to the idea of proportional to something. Uh, here's an example. You guys heard that Elon Musk bought Twitter, right? You heard that. Uh, okay, don't clap. Uh, you can clap, whatever. Uh, it's great. Fine. Now, you, you guys don't tweet anyway. You just look at things on Twitter, right? I'm, I'm bad. Like, I'm a ghost on Twitter. They asked me the other day what my phone number was, and I didn't even want to give it, right? But I, I look at stuff on Twitter, and I'm always scrolling in, like, news and stuff and sports and stuff and golf and stuff. Uh, but, yeah, sorry, that's lame. But, Point is, he bought Twitter. Okay, do you know how much he bought it for? It's crazy. $44 billion. He bought Twitter for $44 billion. And you might say, that's crazy. How can you possibly afford that? Well, according to an article I read yesterday that was dated um, October 27th, so I guess it was two days ago now, what is Elon Musk's net worth? His net worth is $220 billion. Okay. So he bought Twitter for $44 billion. He's worth, they estimate, around $220 billion. Right. You can't understand that. You can't grasp it. But you can say a number. Right. You can understand he's rich. That's the point. Um, that would be similar to this. Imagine you're a high school student. Also, you don't have to imagine that. You are one. Let's imagine that your net worth is $1,000. Okay? I think that's probably pretty fair for many of you, right? You got stuff in some savings accounts. Maybe you got a piggy bank, right? You got a wallet. You know, you buy gas, and that, like, drops your net worth down substantially. Like, does your bank account go like this, and you get to zero? Like, you get really close. You got $30 in your account. And you're like, oh, man, like, I can't even buy gas. Does that happen just when I was in high school? Okay, great. Uh, let's imagine your net worth is $1,000. That's probably pretty fair for some of you. A lot of you, you know, you got some money. You work a little bit. $1,000. Is that a lot of money? Well, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of money, but it's not like a huge net worth. Uh, eventually, your net worth is going to be bigger than that unless you go into debt and don't do that, but that's a different sermon. Uh, but if you went out and you bought something for $200, $200, is that impressive? I mean, if, if your net worth is $1,000 and you buy something for $200, that's 20% of your net worth. That's significant. That's huge. Right? If you bought me something that was $200 right, from your $1,000 net worth, that'd be a big thing. Right? And don't do that. Uh, but if you did, that would be crazy. Super generous. 20% of all that you own. Do you understand that that's how much Elon Musk paid for Twitter? 
20% of what he's worth. So therefore, it would be the same as you if you had $1,000 spending $200. That's a huge investment. You don't want that to go to waste. That's significant, but um, it's not everything. That doesn't minimize how much $44 billion is. But here's the point. If you were to give me $200, that would be you giving according to your riches. It's big. It's significant. But according to the riches that you have. For Elon Musk to give me $200, that, I mean, like, great. I don't really care. Not that I don't care. It's the same $200, but that's not proportional, right? Here's the point. $44 billion is 20% of his net worth. $200 might be 20% of your net worth. If you were to give $200, that'd be one thing. If you were to give $44 billion, that'd be another thing. God has more than $220 billion. What's his net worth? How much does he own? What's he worth? How long has he been, you know, investing? I can't even answer that question. Infinite. Everything. Okay, so now here's what it says. When God gives according to his riches, what is it saying about what he's giving? It's saying it's huge, right? Elon Musk bought Twitter according to his riches, right? You can't buy Twitter because you can't afford it. It's 20% of him. Just like you might be able to afford $200 or something. That's huge. You're giving according to your riches. What does God own? I can't even answer that question. He owns everything. So if he's going to give according to his riches, here's the point. How much does he give to his people? So much. How much love does he give if his love is infinite and wide? How much does he give to you? Well, he gives according to his riches and according to his love. It's huge. It's bigger than you can even imagine. Like the love that God has shown you, you, you can't even get your mind around it. If you were to write down every last thing that God did for you, you still couldn't write it. Every, while you're writing it down, God would just continue to be good to you. It's overwhelming. This passage is overwhelming. He can do far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. Philippians 4, 19 has the same phrase. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ. Same idea. He's, a, he's able to supply every need. Because how, how rich is God? How powerful is God? How loving is God? How comforting is God? Can God comfort you according to his comfort? Yes. How much comfort is that? It's a lot. These big things are what we should ask for. John 14, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. They're going to glorify God like I do. And greater works than these will they do because I'm going to the Father. So when Jesus left, the apostles won more people to Jesus than Jesus ever did while he was on earth. The next verse says, whatever you ask in my name, according to me, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Remember why God's going to answer prayers. The last thing you can write down, letter C, is... uh, Deepen your trust in God, who is, let us see, bringing himself glory in every generation. It's a simple way of putting it. But God is bringing himself glory in every single generation. And here's what you can count on. In your generation, will God bring himself glory? Absolutely. Will he do it through your life? The answer here is yes. Ask for it, though. Ask and watch what God will do. If every one of you is asking for this right here, verse 21, asking that God would be glorified in every decision, guess what you'd stop doing? You'd stop doing the sinful things that don't please him. If you started asking God, please show me the right way. Show me what what am I supposed to do after high school? Should I go to college? Should I go to this thing? Should I do that? Guess what? If we all prayed that, you guys would be sent out in a million different directions, doing a million different things, but you would be glorifying God in all of those things. That's what we need to do. That's what you need to do. So much time, 
is spent and effort is spent for people looking for their purpose. Can I tell you, and I've told you before, don't look for your purpose. It's right here. Glorify God. That's it. Congratulations. You've solved the first 30 years of your life to your midlife crisis. You know what your purpose is now. Glorify God. Congratulations. Just save you 30 years of time. All right? No charge. Just free of charge right there because the Bible says it. Your purpose is to glorify God in everything, in all things, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Do it all for the glory of God. That should direct our decisions in every generation. Here's why that's amazing. Because God did not stop working in the Old Testament. He did not stop working in the New Testament. He continues to work. Does he work differently? Yes. Does he do differently? Yes, he does. But is he still working and bringing himself glory? Yes, he is. Reminds me of Psalm 78. Psalm 78 verse 4 says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord. This is talking about um, these parents telling their kids what God did, bringing these people out of Egypt. Right? You've heard the stories. Right? You learned them when you were kids. And by the way, one of the reasons some of you learned them when you were kids is because your parents were obeying Psalm 78 to tell your kids about God's glory, to tell your kids about what God has done. It says they'll tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and in the wonders that he has done. He's established a testimony or the word of God in Jacob, in Israel, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Like, Summarize what we do in kids' ministry. Summarize what we do in uh, the Narrows. Summarize what we do in True North. I mean, a huge part of it is that right there. That the next generation, that you would know the works of God, that you would set your hope on God, and that you would obey his commandments. Really simple. One, two, three. Know God's commandments, set your hope on God, and then just follow him. Psalm 145, verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. If that doesn't get you, if that doesn't excite you, it needs to start doing that. You need to start saying, I'm going to focus more attention on what God's done. I need to focus more of my mental energy and effort on that. The sermon is about prayer. And those three little subpoints are trying to get you to say, this is why you should trust God more. But I want to talk about the specifics of what Paul asks us to pray. Just here in closing, point number two, I want you to ask God for more. Ask God for more. And you might be saying, more of what? Well, that's what these subpoints are all about. Letter A, ask God for more what? Well, the first thing he says in verse 16 is that you would ask God for more internal strength through the Holy Spirit. Ask God for more internal strength through the Spirit. This is a command for Christians. Here's something you should be asking God every day. God, strengthen me through your spirit. I know your spirit is living in me. He's active in me. He wants me to live in a right way. He wants me to choose the good. He wants me to reject the evil. God, give me strength to do it. I need strength to do it. The passage says strength in the inner man. Listen to this. This is um, another passage in the New Testament that talks about our inner person. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, 17, and 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, and 18 says this. So, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, 
not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I hope that one of the things that you should be praying for every day, and I hope that you pray for this week, is that you would get your eyes, and by eyes I don't mean your physical eyeballs, but your attention and your focus off just what's going on in front of you. I want you to get your eyes for a minute off of the assignments that you have for school. I want you to get your eyeballs just for a second, not for the, forever. Just, just take some time and get your mind off of your friendship problems and off of the problems at home. Get your mind off of that for a while and put your mind on the things that are unseen. Put your mind on what this text says about God's love. We fight a spiritual battle. Um, it's a real battle. I was telling some of you the other day, just sometimes when we use the word spiritual, some of you translate that word for not real. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say that. Spiritual just means an unseen problem. There's a battle that's going on that's spiritual. Some of you hear that and think, oh, you mean like a fake battle. You mean like an imaginary battle. That's not what the Bible means. It, there's a real battle going on. It's just not in, in, in bullets and tanks and swords and spears. It's just not that kind of battle, but it's a real battle that's going on. Ephesians 6 the end of our book says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's put on the whole armor of God. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. You need strength. One thing you need to pray for is strength in your spirit. Second thing you need to pray for, letter B, is comprehension of Christ's deep love. I want you to pray for comprehension of Christ's deep love. That's something that... If you don't pray for, you'll think very little of. You'll think, oh yeah, Jesus died for me, great, know that, check the box, already, already done. No, no, I want you to comprehend more of his deep love. Even just to say that, do you understand the pain that Jesus went through? Well, not, not totally. Okay, well, start to understand that more. Do I understand the extent of even how he felt in the incarnation? Well, no, not completely. Okay, well, understand that more. Right? Understand that love in a deeper way. It says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Listen to what Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 3. He says something similar. He says that knowing Christ is the most important thing. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's Philippians 3.8. Then Philippians 3.10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not, verse 12, that I have already obtained this, or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. What's the point? Um, if I were to ask you the question, do you know God? Do you know Jesus? You might be like, yeah, I know who he is. I know. Well, no, no, that's not what I'm asking. Do you know him, though? Well, I, I know about him. I know things. Well, am I a Christian? Yes, I know him because I'm a Christian. I trust in him. I, I know him. But, like, how well do you know him? What do you know about him? When you think of him and when you talk to him, how well do you know him? How deeply do you know him? Would you honestly stand up in front of people and say, yeah, I know God? That's a really hard question. I know some of us think that's so basic, but I think if you think it's so basic, you might be missing what I'm trying to say. Um, and I hope I'm not being confusing, but there's a difference between knowing about and knowing. There's a difference between um, understanding truths that God says about himself and believing those truths in such a way that you love God for those truths. Do you know him? 
Paul says, I don't know him completely yet. That's so weird for Paul to say, though, right? Because he, obviously he knows Jesus. But he says, am I perfect in this yet? Have I attained this perfect, full comprehension of God? No, I'm not perfect yet. Every last one of you, I don't care how smart you are, I don't care how spiritual you are, you have not attained perfect knowledge of God, right? And if you think you know more than the next person, stop looking down your nose at them, right? Just know God better, right? That's something for all of us. Know God better. Our attitude should be like the psalmist in Psalm 66, verse 16. He says, come and hear all you who fear God, and let me tell you what God has done for my soul. If you could start telling people and start knowing how much Christ has done for you, and it just like overflows, like let me just, I got to tell you what he's done. I got to tell you how he helped me today. I got to tell you what he did for my family. I got to tell you all that he's done in comforting my heart. I've been so downcast. I've been so depressed and anxious and scared, but Jesus has come and he's helped me. Could you tell people that? My fear is if you can't tell people that, it's not happening. It's probably not happening for many of us. That's what I'm saying. You got to know God intimately. Psalm 34 says the same thing. A lot of psalms I'm quoting this morning. The reason is, um, I said that this text talks about an experiential type of love, not simply a head knowledge of facts about God, right? If you simply know that there's a fact that Jesus died for sinners, that doesn't make you saved by what he did. That doesn't mean you trust in him. That just means you know facts about him, right? You don't become a Christian just by reciting something. Or, or repeating words, or saying, oh, I, I mentally ascend to the fact that that could be true. You become a Christian, and you grow in Christ by continually putting your hope in God and trusting in God. That happens at one point at the beginning, but it continues on. you got to continue to trust God. Psalm 34 talks about blessing God at all times. It says, my pray, his praise shall always be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad themselves. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is anyone who takes refuge in him. I know that's a high calling, that's a big thing, but to say, and that most of us probably aren't saying that every day, but can you get to the place where you're saying that? That's the big prayers that we're asking for. Are you struggling with certain sins or anxieties or depressions? Maybe because you never stop and you never take time to think about what Christ has done for you. So many of us are so concerned with such little things that they're big, but they're, but they're little in the grand scheme of things. You don't think about what Jesus did for you. How did Jesus save you? Have you thought about that recently? What did he save you out of? What were you doing? What would you never have turned away from? How did God's spirit convict you and change you? And just like clearly you could see this wasn't me. This was God leading me there. How did God embrace you com- completely when he forgave you? How did, what did it feel like? What did he do? How did God surround you? with Christians who cared for you? How did he give you leaders and people in your life that will teach you God's word and will help you and ask you hard questions and try to pull you out of sin? How did he do that? How did the spirit continue to teach you every day through his word? What is he teaching you? How does Jesus surround your heart with comfort in every trial? How will Jesus come back to this earth and change it and transform it 
and make everything that's wrong right, how will God bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom? Second or Second Timothy 4. Uh, how much are you thinking about that? Right? For those of you who do struggle with anxiety, and you do struggle with depression, you think, I want you to stop thinking about whatever you're thinking about and start thinking about this. This is step number one in all of that. You've got to get your eyes on Christ. The last thing, verses 17 and 19, the last thing that I want you to ask God for more of says that your heart would be full of Christ and of the fullness of God. Letter C, I want you to ask God for more of himself reflected in you. I want you to ask for more of God to be reflected in you. Knowing him changes you. It becomes something that you're all about. You're full of God. I, I gave that analogy at the beginning, but imagine your life is full of, of him and your ideas and your conversations. The Bible teaches us an amazing truth. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. God the Father, God the Son, and then later he's going to say God the Spirit, all living and dwelling in, in you. It's what the Bible says. Right? Believe it or not, that's what it says. I want you to believe it. And hopefully your life looks more like him. We quoted this last time, but uh, Colossians 1.27 says, the mystery of godliness which is what Paul just talked about, his whole job, remember last sermon, to share the mystery of God? Do you remember what Colossians 1.27 says? This is the mystery, the big secret, like the, thi- the, the, the big thing that God kept secret for a long time that now that's clear. Colossians 1.27. This is the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the secret. That's, that's, the, that's the solution. That's the everything, that Jesus is in you and in your life. That's huge. Changes everything. Turning back to Gordon Ramsay for a second. I never thought I'd say that during a sermon. But turning back to Gordon Ramsay for a second, part of the reason why I'd be afraid to ask him what he'd make is because I probably shouldn't be asking him. He should be the one telling me what to ask him. Right? I can make this, I can make this, I can make this. Um, our requests to God are small, and sometimes they're not requests that he asks us to make. Um, the requests that God gives us are big requests, but I want you to remember why they're big requests. They're big requests because in answering them, God will show off his fame. If you can kind of take the, the picture of Gordon Ramsay and flip it on its head, imagine I'm not, he's not in my kitchen now, I'm in his kitchen. I'm on his TV show and he invited me just to be a taster, right? Someone who just kind of gets to taste it. Um, he's the one that kind of gets to decide the menu and he's the one that should kind of figure out what I should ask for. And whatever he makes is gonna like, weird Bible phrase, but like show his glory. It's going to show off how good he is and his skills. I hope you understand. That's why we should go with the request that God asks us to ask him because they're bigger, they're better. They show God's glory off and ultimately it's better for us in the end. Remember your life is about giving God glory. Thankful that we were able to go through this series, Grace. Excited to start a new series next week, but let's pray that God would help us ask for more. God, you tell us to ask for more. We trust that you know more than us, and sometimes we act as though that's not true. Thankful that we can trust you. Pray that our trust in you would just become deeper and deeper this week as we consider what this passage says about your love, about your ability and your power. Please change our attitudes about prayer. 
just ask you that we wouldn't be thinking this week that we are scared about having to pray and afraid that um, we're not going to have time. I just pray that we would just do it. Whether it's in the morning or at night, whether it's in our cars, whether it's right before school, whether it's during school, after school, whatever. I just pray that we come to you and we pray these big things. Even if we start out by something as simple as just asking that you would get glory through my life today. We know that when we ask you these big things, it's a part of your big plan. I'm so thankful that you promise that you're going to be glorified in our generation. That's comforting. Thank you for loving us enough to include us in your plan. Pray that this week we live for you better. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. See you on Wednesday night.